0: people need to understand what is actually the root cause of disease. So as a, as a holistic integrated physician or functional medicine physician, we go by so many different names. Now I don't think about disease states. So I don't think about, Oh, you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have Hashimoto's. I think about root cause. And I think about which one of these seven root causes is causing this person's manifestations because diseases are manifestations of an underlying dysfunction. I actually got, in trouble at a couple of places I worked for prescribing ivermectin, I got in trouble for prescribing fluvoxamine. The problem is, is that people were using ivermectin in lots of different ways. They were using it pre-exposure, early on, five days after, and then all the protocols were different. And so you'd see a study that said ivermectin didn't work. And then I look at that study and I said, oh, on average, they started people on ivermectin five days after symptoms started. Well, of course it's not going to work. I mean, that trial is designed for the drug to fail.
1: Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. guys think of my new intro i'm actually interested to know because i for one love it very much it's kind of like a mix between reggae and rock um but anyway welcome back everyone this is going to be part two of the dr richard harris podcast again i'm not going to get tired of saying it because it's so accurate he is literally like an encyclopedia on so many health topics it's insane i loved speaking with him Before we get into it, I wanted to mention a few things. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you've listened to some of my previous episodes with other guests, please be sure to consider supporting the podcast in one of the following ways. You can either buy me a coffee to keep me well caffeinated and thinking at the link below at buymeacoffee.com slash live damn well. You can also support my book. Check it out on Amazon. It's called Return to Human. Just make sure to click the little filter for books. You can also check out Hugh Kitchen products, which are incredible. By the way, all of these sponsors that I will ever talk about on the podcast. This is a very conscious decision that I made before I began the podcast. I will never promote something that I have not personally tried and vetted myself. And so all of the following uh, products that you'll hear and foods are things that I've been using for a while. My family has been using and things that I feel comfortable using myself, recommending it to a family member. So... Q Kitchen Products is the first one. If you haven't heard of them, you're really missing out. They are probably one of the most delicious kind of like quote unquote cheat foods. I don't even like calling it that, but they have these uh, paleo crackers and cookies and uh, dark chocolates that are incredible. Some of them filled with like raspberries, some of them filled with like almond butter or cashew butter, uh, some of them with like puffed quinoa and they're all organic. They don't even use regular sugar. They use organic coconut sugar. Uh, So they have very, very good products there. Check them out. You can get 15% off their products at the link in the description. Finally, check out Energy Bits. I had uh, Catherine Arnston on the podcast a while ago now, and she talked about the benefits of chlorella and spirulina, and they are wide ranging. I was a little bit worried it was going to be another fringe vegan supplement or something that just kind of didn't work, or there wasn't very much evidence for. But especially spirulina has a lot of good evidence for uh, it being anti-inflammatory, it being effective for supporting immune health, and some blood biomarkers, and even for weight loss as kind of like a uh, an adjunct to, to a weight loss program, it seems to be helpful for that, for cholesterol, insulin sensitivity, and a bunch of other uh, health markers there. So. Check them out. You can get a 20% off discount with code LIVEDAMWELL at EnergyBits.com. And now on with the show. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned seven root causes of disease, and I, I don't know how briefly if you can do it briefly at all, uh, because there's just a lot of other questions I wanted to ask you, but I, I was really interested by that. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about those? Yeah, this is actually how
0: I started my podcast, because I was thinking about a topic, and I, uh, the first thing I talked about was, well, people need to understand what is actually the root cause of disease. So as a a holistic, integrated physician or functional medicine physician, we go by so many different names now, I don't think about disease states. So I don't think about, oh, you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have Hashimoto's. I think about root cause. And I think about which one of these seven root causes is causing this person's manifestations. Because diseases are manifestations of an underlying dysfunction. So if I just treat high blood pressure by lowering your blood pressure, I'm not treating the root cause. If I just treat your diabetes by lowering your blood sugar, I'm not treating the root cause. So the root causes, and this is in no specific order, dysbiosis, abnormal gut bacteria. There's tons of research going on about the microbiome. It's crazy the fact that we have trillions of bacterial and protozoa and fungal cells like in us and on us, trillions. I've seen varying numbers, but we, we may have about a hundred more bacterial and microbiota genes than we have our own genes. So it controls every single aspect of our biology, every single one. There's a gut brain access, there's a gut lung access, there's a gut kidney access, certain gut bacteria have been associated with Anxiety and depression, you put other gut bacteria in, they actually improve our mood. There's certain gut bacteria that are associated with being lean. In fact, there's a study that was done in mice where they had mice work out on a treadmill. They took their gut bacteria, implanted it in obese mice, and those obese mice lost weight just by that. Right. Right. Our gut bacteria, it's so important to our overall health, and it's getting destroyed by modern life. Stress destroys your gut bacteria toxins especially processed foods lack of sleep lack of exercise all of these things change our gut microbiome the overuse of antibiotics is huge i always tell people if you have the sniffles and a cough stop asking your doctor for antibiotics you are causing your body more harm than good plus you're selecting for resistant bacteria because you're killing off your good bacteria and you're making it more likely if you get a serious infection in the future that it's going to be antibiotic resistance. This is a huge problem because pharmaceutical companies aren't making new antibiotics because it's not sexy. It's not profitable. It's not big money. So that's going to be a huge problem. So stop asking for antibiotics. If you've got a viral infection, you know, typical cold, they don't work. You're getting placebo effect. That's why you feel better. The next is toxins. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Toxins are everywhere look, take a look at glyphosate, right? Roundup billion dollar lawsuits for cancer. That's just one of the things that it does. It worsens inflammation. It's been associated with obesity, with hormone disruption. It's actually a really powerful antibiotic. So it's associated with dysbiosis. And depending on the study you read up to 93% of people have glyphosate in their urine, it's everywhere. And it stays in the soil forever. So this is something, this is just one toxin. Look at sunscreens, right? There was a study a couple of years ago that showed the ingredients in sunscreens got in our blood more than they thought. It was more than what was legally allowed. And I said, oh, you're going to see sunscreens pulled off the market in one or two years. Look what happened. Boom, two years later, massive recall of sunscreens. A lot of these ingredients, we don't know what they do because they haven't been studied. It's kind of crazy to think about in this day and age, you can do that, right? Put a product on the market without adequate testing To see what effects it has. The the cosmetics that women use, infertility rates are at an all-time high because we are just slathering our body with toxins. We're eating toxins. The air quality is terrible in a lot of places, so there's just tons of toxins, and our, our detox systems are overworked. The next one is hormone dysregulation, and we alluded to some of this earlier. Insulin resistance, that's a hormone dysregulation abnormalities in sleeping where you have abnormal levels of melatonin or something like that. That's a hormone issue, right? Mm -hmm. There's tons and tons of hormones. We typically think about sex hormones in this regard, low testosterone. You see that everywhere, everywhere. There are so many men now in their twenties who are presenting with low testosterone because of these lifestyle choices that we make. And that can impact every single aspect of your physiology. Vitamin D is actually a hormone. 42% Forty-two percent of the population overall is low in vitamin D, and that controls over two hundred different genes. So that's very important. Inflammation is the root cause of all root causes, and all th- these root causes can all cause other root causes. So, like dysbiosis can cause inflammation, inflammation can cause dysbiosis. Hormone dysregulation can cause inflammation, inflammation can cause hormone dysregulation. All right, but inflammation is the final common pathway. And what I like to tell people is inflammation is not all bad. If you break your arm, you need inflammation to get white blood cells there, prevent infection, bring nutrients, clean up dead tissue, make you new bone and, and tendon and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. What you don't want is inflammation going on for too long to where the body begins to attack itself. This is autoimmune disease. This is, leads to plaque buildup, leads to heart attacks and strokes leads to dysregulated growth signaling so this is how cancer can develop so that is the root cause of all root causes that every one of them feeds into the next is genetics now this is a root cause but it's way overplayed a lot of times people will come to us and say well you know my dad had diabetes his dad had diabetes i just knew i was going to get diabetes i'm like yeah you know there's a genetic predisposition there but you know what also runs in families habits you probably have the same habits as the people who got diabetes and high blood pressure and all of that. My genes say I should be depressed, overweight, have an autoimmune disease. I'm the only person in my immediate family who doesn't have an autoimmune disease. But I don't because my habits are different. My genetics are terrible. I've looked at them. I've looked, they're horrible. They say I should be riddled with disease by now. But I don't because of my habits are different. This is epigenetics. You can change the expression. Your genes are like a dimmer switch. They can come on 10%, they can come on 30%, they can come on 100%. So even though I may be more predisposed to activate a certain gene, I can still control how much of that is activated to a certain extent by my behaviors. And that's epigenetics. The next is stress. So people think stress is all mental. It's all in their head. You know, I feel stressed. I feel boxed in. I feel overwhelmed. Those feelings come from neuromodulators, norepinephrine, mostly in the brain, cortisol. And so that can lead to excess inflammation. It can lead to hormone dysregulation. It can lead to dysbiosis. So stress is a root cause of disease. And the last one is nutrient deficiencies, not uncommon. We talked about vitamin D. It's estimated that I've seen as high as 60, 65% of people are deficient in magnesium. B vitamin deficiencies are not uncommon because of all the processed food we eat. 65% of the total caloric intake for most Americans is processed food. These are not food. These are food that's been chemically transformed. And in that process, a lot of the nutrients are destroyed. In fact, a lot of products, they add in synthetic antioxidants because the foods aren't going to stay shelf stable without them. And those synthetic antioxidants are endocrine disruptors like BHT. So these foods are devoid of nutrients. They're high in calories. This is why you can eat McDonald's and feel hungry an hour later. You eat a steak with some broccoli and some nuts. You're going to be full for hours, right? Because your body's getting enough nutrients from that. Those other processed foods, you're not. And so nutrient deficiencies are not uncommon And it's like, if you're in manufacturing, what do they say? Garbage in, garbage out. The quality of your final product is determined by the quality of your raw materials and the experience of the people making it, right? So we feed ourselves a lot of garbage, raw materials and expect our bodies to be Ferraris. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So you have to pay attention to all of these things. These are the root causes of disease. And this is how I approach things
1: when I, when I see a, a patient or a client. Now, how is it? Um, because I've had gut issues uh, for a while, and I think that's obviously probably feeds into the anxiety piece and fits into um, my poor sleep quality and quantity, but I know other people who also have pretty bad gut issues, but they don't have a problem with sleep. Is that just genetics or, or how is it that there are different manifestations of the same root cause? Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a great question. And it it could partially be genetics.
0: So I've had gut issues all my life. Um, I did my genetics, I have a a SNP or a change in a gene called FUT2. And FUT2, what it does is it puts what we call the glycocalyx or carbohydrate on the top on the outside of your cells in your gut. And this is what bacteria anchor to it's part of what makes the mucus in our gut. I know that sounds gross, that bacteria can anchor to. I have a mutation there i don't do that as well so i had a lot of gut issues you know foods i ate a lot of things i can't eat they don't agree with me and then i started taking probiotics and things got dramatically better all my irritable bowel symptoms went away i had terrible irritable bowel symptoms now somebody else may not and so it's partially genetics it's partially environmental exposure. So a lot of people with irritable bowel and stuff like that, they got an infection, and then they had symptoms after that. They got a priming event. Some people never get that priming event. You know, a lot of times with with these things, it's you're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the right genetics or the wrong genetics, I guess I should say, right? And that's how something started. So this is why you have to work in a stepwise fashion, because you, you, ne- you can do a lot of testing to... Try to determine these things. The testing is expensive. The docs who do it are expensive. Or you can approach this systematically and try to figure it out yourself by trying these behaviors and seeing which how they help your issue. So in your case, it could be the stress is causing the gut issues. We know that the gut-brain axis, that's very well linked. Or it could be the gut issues are causing the stress. Right. All right? And somebody else, it could be that They have gut issues. They're sleeping fine because the gut population that they have is not adversely affecting their neuromodulators, but it is causing localized gut inflammation. And if you're getting localized gut inflammation, you're going to have gut symptoms, but you may be sleeping okay because those particular gut bacteria that make like GABA or serotonin, you know, some of these neuromodulators involved with with mood and, and sleep, and anxiety may be okay. So that's why you can have two people with different, the same symptoms with different root causes. And that's why it takes some investigation and, and
1: some insight, the right testing to get down to that. Right, right now, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the gut microbiome, you mentioned that um, it's responsible for or the gut and the gut microbiome are responsible for um, making some neurotransmitters like the serotonin um, and GABA. So what are some of the first, the main culprits in, you know, in, in blocking the production of those? And um, then how do you actually, you know, what are some things that can enhance that? Yeah, we are still doing a lot of research
0: on the gut microbiome and we're still figuring stuff out. I would say the number one problem that people have to the gut microbiome is what they eat because that determines the population. We've started to figure out that a healthy microbiome is a diverse microbiome. And how do you have a diverse microbiome? You eat a diversity of foods. And so the processed foods that a lot of people eat, they're eating the same processed garbage over time. Their fiber intake is very low. We know that fiber or prebiotics feed our bacterial colonies. They take it, they ferment it, and they make certain things called short chain fatty acids, One of them is butyrate. Butyrate's like my favorite molecule. It's wonderfully anti-inflammatory, feeds gut cells, and lower levels of butyrate are correlated with Alzheimer's disease that helps protect the brain, that gut brain access. These gut microbiome or gut cells, they also help us digest food. They help us fight off invaders. There was a really cool study that was done that showed that the microbiome will recognize viruses and tell the immune system that there's a virus over there. They should go get it. That's really cool. They, they also will secrete things that will change our behavior. So when you start eating clean, you know, eating a whole food plan, you'll start to crave things like broccoli and asparagus and nuts and fruits. Partially is that because you like them. Partially it's because your gut bacteria likes that stuff. When you have bad gut bacteria, they're going to make you crave stuff that's bad for you. And so I always tell people, give yourself 30 days, go 30 days, low sugar, 30 days eating whole foods. If you can make it through that, your palate will start to change, your regulation of appetite and satiety will start to change, and your microbiome will start to change. And when that happens, you'll start
1: to see overall systems and processes improve. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, How much fiber, by the way, would you recommend that people typically have and what types? Yeah. So it it
0: varies depending on who you talk to, you know, for men, I'd say 30, 35 grams of fiber a day for women, 25 to 30, somewhere in in that range of fiber. What you want is your, your fiber from whole foods, right? Plants, fibrous plants, starchy roots you know, like potatoes, tubers, that kind of stuff. And then berries and citrus fruits. Those are the, the types of fibrous things that I get. Nuts also have a pretty good amount of fiber, right? Avocado has a pretty good amount of fiber. So I always try to have a little bit of, of fiber on my plate in addition to, you know, my, my protein source and my, and my good fats. So those are the types of things I typically recommend. Most people just mm-hmm. don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. Honestly, I I usually try to have half my plate be fruits and veggies. And then I have my meat and, you know, I'll have like olive oil drizzled on the veggies or something like that for good fats or, you know, butter or ghee or something like that.
1: Do you recommend a plant-based diet? Not necessarily because there's
0: no one size fits all when it comes to nutrition. I've coached people who are very sensitive to plant anti-nutrients. That sounds weird, right? But plants make things like oxalates and phytates because plants don't want to be eaten. So one of the evolutionary strategies that plants made, and this sounds crazy, but it's actually true, is they made molecules that would bind up nutrients to reduce the sex hormones of the animals that ate them. So they would try to sterilize the population. So less reproduction, less animals that would eat them. And some people are very sensitive to these plant anti-nutrients. I have a friend who for years has felt off for years has had, you know, little abnormalities here and there realized it was the veggies went carnivore and she feels amazing. She's like 55 feels amazing. I have other friends who, and the clients I've worked with, they cannot eat meat. Like it just does not agree with them. They can do a little bit of fish little bit of of shelf food. And that's it. They eat anything else, they feel horrible. So it there is no one size fits all. I think the most important thing when it comes to food is just eat whole foods, figure out what works for your body, what you like, and how you respond to certain things. I personally do very well low carb, I do not do well with high carb, even if they're complex carbs. Because back when I was powerlifting, I was eating like 200 grams of complex carbs a day I felt horrible absolutely horrible it was all whole food it was all complex carbs but I still felt terrible mm-hmm. I went low carb and felt amazing I used to have to take a nap every day at my desk at noon because I was so tired and I haven't taken a nap in years my body responds very well to low carb but it doesn't mean it's right for everybody so you have to figure out kind of how you respond you got to kind of try certain things but don't go crazy. I'm not a fad diet person. I actually don't even use the word diet because I don't have a diet. I have a nutrition plan, but it took me a while to figure out what works best for my body. But again, the most important thing is just eat whole foods. You do that. The rest
1: will come into line. Yeah. I think that's just eat whole foods is a, an amazing general guideline with which most people do not do enough of, especially in the United States. Um, and then, you know, kind of refining from there. Um, it's weird because my immediate ancestry, I'm Mexican. So it's, you know, it's, it's Mexican, it's, it's Spain, but it's, uh, you know, mostly places where I would say it's higher in in carbs. Right. But the, the strange thing is, is I think I also have a pretty, um, a pretty strong sensitivity to those anti-nutrients that we talked about. So, it's weird because there's this kind of conf- like conflicting, um, you know, side to, to my immediate ancestry, but also, um, how I actually react to those kinds of foods. Mm-hmm. And it takes some discovery, right? I, yeah. There's some genetic testing
0: that you can do, and that might be helpful. And there's some testing you can do for elimination diets to kind of guide it. And that might be helpful, but the best thing is how do you feel? Right. And, mm-hmm. and there's not going to be a single plan that works for everybody. There are ways right. to optimize your plan, right? If you want to do keto, you should find a coach who's done keto, done keto successfully and done it right, because right. you can do it wrong and you can hurt yourself. Same thing with being vegan. If you're not supplementing and you're entirely plant-based, you are setting yourself up for a whole host of nutrient deficiencies, right? The more extreme you go, the more you eliminate entire food groups from your nutrition plan, the more you need to be really targeted and really intentional about what you eat, how you eat and the supplements you take. And it's really should be done with a nutritionist or a a coach who
1: knows that field, knows the research and can guide you. I also wanted to get your thoughts on, on the carnivore diet since you mentioned it Um, because for me, I think it's been, I, I haven't ever done carnivore or really very much animal-based, but I tend to stick to things which are more easily digestible, just because I have a lot of gut issues. Um, and so that's become a huge right—the carnivore diet, um, animal-based stuff. Uh, like Dr. Paul Saladino, you have a bunch of these carnivore diet gurus that are emerging. Um, and I recently had uh, Dr. Tommy Wood on my podcast, and he did a review with Dr. Lucy Mailing a little while ago. Um, and it was called reframing nutritional microbiota studies, something like that. I'll link to it, um, in the show notes, but it basically mentioned the fact that they're not entirely sure what a healthy gut microbiome truly is and Mm -hmm. you know, how much fiber would you actually need? It might depend Mm -hmm. on the person. Right. And, and the fact that the gut microbiome is pretty flexible. So if you do something Mm -hmm. like a lower carb and maybe even like a carnivore diet where you're not really getting very much fiber at all, it can kind of take different fuels, yeah,
0: that's true. We, we don't know what the ideal microbiome is. We just know that it, it seems to be that it's diverse. That's, that's kind of where we are at, at what's a healthy microbiome. Now we know that certain bacterial species are associated with certain things, right? Certain um, bacteria make those short chain fatty acids, certain bacteria make dopamine, certain ones are, are making serotonin, like bacillus makes dopamine, Uh, Enterococcus and strep make serotonin. uh, Bifidobacterium and lactobacterium are GABA. Uh, L-Rudera has been associated with oxytocin and dopamine uh, through stimulating the vagus nerve. So we know that, but we just don't know, like you should have 20% this, 30% this, 40% that, right? And it's not the same for every population. If you look at different places around the world, their microbiome is different. The water they drink, the foods they eat, And so what might be a healthy microbiome for someone in Japan may not be healthy for someone who's in America. And so one of the reasons you get traveler's diarrhea and things like that is you can even eat, you know, clean foods and things like that. It just may be different foods than you eat and you don't have the right microbiome to help you digest those foods. Right. For instance, in Japan, they have a a different bacteria that really helps them digest seaweed, something in seaweed, a porphyrin in seaweed. We don't have that in our, Microbacterium here in America because we don't eat a lot of seaweed, mm-hmm. so th- this is something that's being hotly discovered. But you're right. I'm again. I'm not against carnivore. Now, carnivore doesn't mean that you can eat chicken nuggets and Salisbury steak out of a package every single day. Oh right? My. That's not. That's yeah. not what it means. Also, to do carnivore right, you have to eat organ meat. You have to. It's non-negotiable. And they make organ meat blends that you can get. They make organ meat tablets. But if you're just eating muscle meat, you're going to get nutrient deficiencies. So that is why, again, if you're going to do carnivore, find these experts, find coaches that you trust who are talking about organ meat. Because if you're talking, if they're talking carnivore, they're not talking about organ meat. They're not, they're not well-versed in carnivore, right? right? And then also like my friends who do carnivore, they'll do it for a little bit and then they'll see what veggies they can add back in. So they may see, okay, let, I've been carnivore. Let me see if I eat broccoli. How do I feel? Okay, mm-hmm. I felt pretty good eating broccoli. And then they'll try asparagus. Ooh, no, I didn't, didn't feel good eating asparagus. they will try to eat blueberries. Oh, actually, I feel pretty good eating blueberries. So they'll go carnivore for a little bit and then they'll go back and add in some of the stuff that was beneficial mm-hmm. that they liked and see if they can tolerate it. It's so kind of like an elimination diet. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Exactly, exactly. And again, this is why working with a coach, I, I, I will say this to the i actually believe that health coaches and nutritionists are the future of medicine because they can do the most important jobs in medicine. My job is not the most important job in medicine. I'm sorry. Uh, other docs will probably get pissed off hearing that, but it's not. It's to get you an accurate diagnosis, but then it's someone else to help guide you through what's gonna work for your body, right? This is something I talked about the other day. Old school conventional medicine is all about clinical trials, right? Randomized control clinical trials. Well, here's the problem with that. We're finding out that there's a lot of variability between individuals, a ton. So if I'm treating 100 million people, my best bet is a clinical trial because it's gonna tell me what's gonna work the best for that hundred million people. It doesn't tell me what's going to work best for that individual in front of me. And that takes nuance and that takes back and forth. That takes trial and error. The clinical trial is a starting point. It's a guide. Mm-hmm. It's not dogma. It's not law. It's not the Bible. But it's a place where I can start saying, hey, based upon what I know now, this is the thing that's going to help the most amount of people. This gives you your best shot. But there's a wiggle room. And we're going to have to find out where in this, what we call confidence
1: interval you are. And that requires personalized touch. Yeah. And I'm not sure if, if you want to go down this rabbit hole um, because it's super controversial, but um, I saw one of your stories about ivermectin and that's obviously something that's been very ridiculed and there's been, it's been pretty one-sided in my opinion. Um, and I've looked into the primary research. I've looked into other experts like yourself, Um, who have different opinions on it. Some people who think that it's not beneficial. Some people who think it is really beneficial. Um, But like you said, simply because, you know, we had to, not we, not me, right? But physicians had to act fast um, in times of of COVID. And, you know, we we didn't have treatments available at the beginning, right? And you had to get, you know, in a sense, sort of creative and weigh the benefits against the uh, the potential costs. Um, You had to act quickly, but for some reason, even if physicians had a hard time um, or or found that ivermectin was actually um, working for some, if not many of their patients, they still were ridiculed because there was no randomized controlled trial for it. They were.
0: And it was tough because I actually got in trouble at a couple of places I worked for prescribing ivermectin. I got in trouble for prescribing fluvoxamine. And I had read the data. It's not like I don't do something because somebody else tells me, oh, you should do this. I'm not that kind of doc. If I'm doing something, it's because of my personal interpretation of the data I've read. And it was like that with ivermectin. You know, there's a website, IVM Meta, who aggregated all the data. The problem is, is that people were using ivermectin in lots of different ways. They were using it pre-exposure, early on, five days after. And then all the protocols were different. And so you'd see a study that said ivermectin didn't work. And then I look at that study and I said, oh, on average, they started people on ivermectin five days after symptoms started. Well, of course, it's not going to work. I mean, that trial is designed for the drug to fail, right? Because the virologic phase for COVID lasts about seven days. So if I'm giving you a drug on day five, when you're about to clear the virus from your body, it's not going to work the strongest data with ivermectin was for prophylaxis pre-exposure and post-exposure and early intervention and the data the the effectiveness decreased right from Mm -hmm. from prophylaxis to post-exposure to early treatment right it was more effective for for prophylaxis The problem is, is that a lot of that research wasn't done in the U S and a lot of docs don't trust foreign research. Well, I trust foreign research. I've met tons of foreign doctors. I trained with a lot of them. They were way smarter than me, way smarter. I wouldn't be who I am today without the work of a lot of foreign doctors I've met with and trained under. So it was one of those things where the response was absurd. Like you have a a medication that won a Nobel prize that for years has been touted as safe, all of a sudden became dangerous. And, and you're a rogue doctor and they were coming after your license for using it. That's crazy. I understand you don't want doctors doing stuff where there's no data behind it. But if there's lots of trials and aggregation of trials showing effect and minimal risk for something that we, at the time, we were still figuring out why not do it. And then my other problem was, is that I'm never going to give you a medication and say, here's a med, this is your best bet or a vaccine. Say, here's a vaccine. Here's your best bet. Good luck. No, I'm going to tell you exercise. I'm going to tell you, eat lots of antioxidants, drink plenty of water, get sleep, you know, do some mindfulness, do some stress reduction because all of these things are going to give you your best odd. I always tell people you cannot depend on medications to overcome your lifestyle. And we've seen this in time and time again. There was a study recently, a meta-analysis on statins that showed that the all-cause mortality reduction of statins for primary prevention, meaning preventing a heart attack, was like 0.8%. It was like one something percent for heart attack and like 2.something percent for stroke. That's it. Now, for people, lay people, that means if you take this drug for primary prevention, the data is showing to prevent death from all causes that about 99.8%, 99.8 percent, ninety nine point eight out of 100 people who take it, or 99.2 out of 100 people who take it will see no benefit. That's crazy, right? If like the yeah. public knew this, they would never take that drug. On the best chase of preventing stroke, you've got a 2.4% reduction. Right. 2.4%. Are you going to place not having your stroke on a 2.4% chance? Nobody's going to do that. And they're so really saying, Well, effects what else do? Right. Yeah. And the side effects. So if you're looking yeah. at this, the number needed to harm is, is about the same as the number needed to treat. That's a bad medicine. Wow. That's bad medicine, right? So these are cardiometabolic diseases caused by lifestyle. Lifestyle is the answer. So again, you know, medication. Yes, I believe in appropriate medication usage. I believe if there's data behind it, we've prescribed things off label, meaning not FDA approved forever. All of a sudden it became a problem, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, don't just give people medication, give them vitamin D very important for your immune system. Exercise very important for your immune system. Sleep, very important for your immune system. And there's studies on all of this. One study showed that, uh, I'm going to butcher the numbers here because I don't remember them exactly, but those who had a higher quality nutrition plan had, I think it was like a 41% reduced chance of going to the hospital for COVID. That's an astronomical number. Yep right? And you didn't hear anything about that, eat well, prevent COVID, right? So again, use a medication if it's appropriate, if there's data behind it, but also give them the
1: non-medication stuff, which is way more powerful than medication. Yeah, yeah, that's been, that's really been my issue with uh, the entire kind of handling and response to the pandemic, because, you know, physicians like you and and others, um, they had different opinions than what was televised. And it was unfortunate because when you heard people say, listen to the science, they weren't talking about the science. They were talking about whatever kind of, um, you know, whatever research supported their beliefs. Right. And mm-hmm. that's not science at all. And to say mm-hmm. that you can't question science, that's ridiculous. Right. The whole nature of science is questioning science.
0: Exactly. Right. Yeah. Things have to be repeatable, reputable. And now we're seeing all kinds of stuff come out, CDC withheld data, um, you know, all of these post-vaccine uh, cardiac events in, in kids, they're still rare, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's that's a serious consideration, especially for something where the mortality rate for children was very low. Right. All right. So, you know, it, this set medicine back decades, the, the response that we had and the, the loss of trust from the public. And I can't blame them. There, there were so many things that were botched during this mm-hmm. time period. And it's going to be a while before we can restore medical trust in the system. But, yep. you know, for the most part, I don't trust the system.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, with a with a vaccine issue, um, and let me know if your opinion differs from my own. But um, it's like it's really like any other pharmaceutical. I think the reason that it was so dogmatic, and you know, everyone needs this. Um, if you don't have it, you're whatever name, grandma killer, whatever. You don't believe in science. Um, even if you've already had it, right, which we know, like mm-hmm. natural immunity is a thing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just seems that because the word vaccine is just so emotionally charged, you couldn't look at it like another pharmaceutical where you actually, you know, you weigh the benefits, the pros and cons of that, that medicine. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually data showing that if
0: you had lower antibody levels, if you're obese, dyslipidemia or high blood pressure, yeah. you, a vaccine is only as good as your immune system. Right. If you have a dysregulated immune system, you're not going to mount the same vaccine response. Mm -hmm. There's similar data in flu. There's similar data in other vaccines as well. So again, even the holistic response is still important for mounting a response to a vaccine. So that's why I hate that all of, all of this response has been either get vaccinated or you're a terrible person or Mm -hmm. you're going to die or or whatever. But you know, I, There's tons of data showing there's other ways that you can protect yourself. Now, I believe vaccination is a personal choice. I don't believe in vaccine mandates. I don't. I I think it it should be a choice between a patient and their physician Mm -hmm. about getting vaccinated or not because there were very real concerns. And what medicine did was shrug them off. Your concerns aren't valid. That's horrible, horrible bedside manner you yeah. lose people when you do that because if you have a concern there's something valid behind that concern there's a fear or there's a worry or there is information seeking all of those are valid so we did a we did a really poor job in, in that regard and you know what i'm hoping of all this that comes out of all this is people realize that hey the government doesn't have their best interest at heart when it comes to health big pharma doesn't big food doesn't it's up to me and they find people like yourself out there who are seeking the truth and providing people with actual real actionable information to help prevent
1: and reverse chronic disease. And like you said, I think that the craziest part about um, the kind of vaccine narrative was that, you know, the ones who were most affected, the people who had obesity, the people who have um you know, who are elderly, um, the people who, you know, do not exercise or do not, um, take care of their diet, do not take care of their sleep, you know, even the, the, the Holy grail of, you know, the kind of, um, the perfect treatment for the pandemic, even the vaccines are not going to work as well. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that,
0: that was documented. You didn't hear anything about that whatsoever. Yeah, but it's true. And, you know, a lot of this got worse. There was data from last year showing people gained about a pound, uh, a pound and a half a month. That's usually what people gain in a year. So you had 12 years worth of metabolic worsening happen in one year. Anxiety and depression rates are through the roof. Suicides went up, overdoses went up. The long lasting effects of this are going to be in the billions of dollars and lots of lives worsened. Cancer screenings went down. I mean, it, it just, it, it was a horrible situation and I'm just hoping that people realize that, Hey, you know, the, the, the vaccines, the, all this other stuff, none of it, none of it is, is our, is our only option. I have to take care of myself. I have to have the personal responsibility to take care of my health. And I saw that time and time again, people, cause I was in the ICU taking care of people during COVID, you know, obese people, people with diabetes, people with high blood pressure, talking to them. And not one of them said, you know what, if I had to do it over again, I would have done the same thing. No, they said that I wish I had taken my health seriously sooner. I had people in the hospital for months, two months, three months saying that they get another chance, they're going to take things differently. They're going to look at things differently. They're going to take care of themselves because of what they went through. But why does it have to be that we only do that after some bad has happened to us? I was talking with a friend yesterday. He had a quadruple bypass. Guy used to be a college athlete. He knows nutrition. He knows exercise. He just let himself go. Everyone in his family had a quadruple bypass. I, told, I looked him straight in the face. I was like, you knew this would happen. Why didn't you do it? He goes, I don't know. I just got lazy. And that blows my mind that that's the mindset that we have here in America, that it takes something bad happen to us before we actually act when we know what our risk factors are he knew he wasn't acting right. Most people know they're not eating right. They know Mm -hmm. exercise is beneficial. They know they need to get sleep. They don't do it anyway Mm -hmm. until something bad happens. But this is a reason why health coaching is so important is to unlock that narrative, reverse that narrative in someone's head and get them to have healthy thoughts and, and really put their health back into their own hands.
1: Yeah. I, I love that you said that. Um, And man, I wish we had more time, but I I don't want to abuse the time that you have given me. And before we go, where can people find out more about you? Yep. You can check out my podcast, Drive for Great Health podcast. It's available on all major
0: platforms. Uh, I post a little bit on social media these days. I'm more working on my other businesses, but when I do post I'm on Instagram, mostly at drharrismd.
1: Amazing. Thank you very much for your time. Again, this was an amazing conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to all your listeners, be blessed and be well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media and the mundane have destroyed our health and how to move back towards optimal health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.